If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Will Tallheimer, who is a widely read and followed learning expert who's probably well known to many of our esteemed podcast listeners. But before we do that, we want to do something that we normally do at the end of the show, and that's to ask you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and also to give us a rating and a quick review on iTunes. You can do both of those things really easily just by going to leadinglearning.com forward slash iTunes. Now, we know at this point we've got thousands of listeners out there, and we'd like to make sure that when we're offering new content that that's going to come right into your podcast feed, and also that uh, you're encouraging others to join us, which giving us a a rating and and review will will certainly help to do. So please jump on over to iTunes, uh, if you will, and uh, take just a moment there to hit that subscribe button and give us a rating and review. Now, before we turn to the interview, we also want to thank WebCourseWorks, makers of the Course Stage Learning Management system for being the sponsor of this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. And you can find out more about WebCourseWorks at webcourseworks.com. Now, Salisa, you had the opportunity to talk with uh, someone who we we both follow and and respect very much, uh, really a a forward-thinking person in the world of learning, Will Tallheimer. How, How did that go? It was a great conversation. Uh, you know, I really admire the work that Will is doing. Uh, he describes it as he's really trying to bridge the gap between research and practice, and that's something that, Jeff, I know you and I feel very passionately about as well. And we talked uh, mostly about his uh, recent book, Performance-Focused Smile Sheets. So really a look at this uh, type of evaluation that so many organizations use, but really trying to dig in and say, how can you improve these and actually make them a more effective measure of what learning is happening? So it's a great conversation, a lot of uh, practical advice uh, in the interview. And Will's a, a funny guy as well that comes across both in his book and in the interview. Well, I love his take on on smile sheets and on evaluations in general. I've also really uh, enjoyed following his thinking around topics like spaced learning and just the the other areas that he really digs into from a a research-focused perspective in the world of learning. So I know this is going to be a great interview, so let's uh, hit play and get on with it. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Will Tallheimer. Will is a learning expert, a researcher, an instructional designer, a speaker, and here I quote Will himself, a gorgeous man hunk of a learning consultant. Oh, no. no. (laughs) He's the author of Performance-Focused Smile Sheets, and he's the brains behind the Will at Work learning blog. Will, thank you for making time for this conversation. Thank you, Salisa. And I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> What's in the book? I figure, you know. I, I think it was a joke. <laughs> well, that's what I love. One of the things I love about the book is that it is incredibly um, uh, practical, but it also has this great sense of humor. So, you know, obviously that was a really brief introduction to you and your work. So I want to give you an opportunity to say a bit more about yourself perhaps more modestly than in the way I, I introduced you there. <laughs> sure. Well, I was born on a, in a log cabin. <laughs> so, no, I've been um, working in the learning and performance field 
for about 30 years. Uh, the last 17 years, uh, almost 18 now, um, what I do is I try to bridge the gap between the research side and the practice side. And uh, in doing that, I read over 200 articles every year from the scientific referee journals on learning, memory, and instruction. And since that doesn't pay anything, uh, what I do <laughs> is do consulting, uh, workshops, speaking engagements uh, based on the research. And I focus mostly in the workplace learning and development field. Um, but uh, recently, I've gotten a lot of calls from uh, trade associations as well. Okay. Well, great. And, you know, w one of the things that I'm going to focus on, because you have done so much work um, across a range of subjects all related to, to learning, but I want to kind of focus in on your recent book, Performance Focused Smile Sheets, and that's subtitled, A Radical Rethinking of a Dangerous Art Form. So we just give our listeners a sense of the dangers that are inherent in traditional smile sheets. Sure. And let me define smile sheets because not everybody knows that term. So um, sometimes they're called evaluation forms or level ones or reaction forms or response forms or student evaluation forms. Um, but they're basically the questions that we give to learners or our conference attendees at the end of a session or after a session. So the danger. Well, the big danger is very straightforward. It's that we're getting information that is not telling us anything of value and that uh, we believe that we're doing well, the numbers look good, and so we go on and we keep doing what we're doing. Uh, the research on this, and you might be surprised that there's actually scientific research on this, but two meta-analyses, a study of many studies, have looked at over 150 scientific studies on smile sheets, and they found that the correlation between smile sheets and learning results is at an R of 0.09. Now, if you remember statistics, you'll remember anything below 0.30 is considered a weak correlation. So 0.09 is virtually no correlation at all. So what that means uh, from a practical standpoint is if you get high marks on your smile sheet, you could have a very good learning uh, session, very good workshop, very good uh, um, learning program, or you could have a very weak one, um, and vice versa. If you get very poor marks, you could have a very poor, very poorly designed program, but you could also have a very effective one as well. With traditional smile sheets, we just can't tell, and that's where the danger is. Yeah, and I loved the the fact that you mentioned those meta analyses, those couple that, that where you found how just that show how little connection there is between the smile sheets and, and the learning results. Um, you know, you advocate doing both end of learning and then kind of after delay measurements of learning. Um, and so, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about you know why there's the need for both, and if you have any tips for how to encourage learners, you know, busy learners who don't have our needs as learning professionals top of mind. How do we encourage those learners to respond to our smile sheets or, or other measurement me mechanisms, especially if we're asking twice? Sure. Well. Uh, as I say in the book, there's benefits from asking immediately after a program, and there's benefits for asking after delay. You have to decide whether it's worth it to do it, because it does take our learners' time. Um, there's logistical issues. There's cost issues. Um, but the benefit to asking immediately is that you're getting people's uh, view 
of how it went sort of from a top of mind kind of uh, experience. So how they felt about it, they're really going to remember that. But if you ask them later, the benefit then is you can focus more in on whether there's value, whether they've actually used it, um, and whether uh, it actually has utility for them. So you get, by doing it twice, and you might only want to do that for something that's really important, right? Um, But by doing it twice, you gain both of those perspectives, so you're not missing out on anything. Now, you asked about the learners. So uh, it's true. These things take time. Now, the number one, I think, number one thing I think that we can do to uh, encourage our learners or motivate them to take our evaluation form seriously is by asking them good questions. Mm. You know, what happens if you look at a lot of smile sheets, people just circle the same number all the way down. I get a sense from that that learners don't really believe, whether it's a conscious thing or unconscious, they don't really believe that our numeric scales, our Likert-like scales, are telling us that much. And so if we give them these questions and they know they're a little bit fuzzy, the answer choices, then I know, I, I think that they're uh, saying to themselves, well, I'm not going to take that much time. So that's number one, ask better questions. Uh, number two, we need to make a passionate plea for the value of these things. Um, I've seen trainers pass uh, smile sheets out and say, okay, we got to fill these out. <laughs> Please right. do them. <laughs> right? But you know, I've also seen trainers, really good ones, say, listen, I know it might be a little bit of a pain, but look, I really do get good feedback from these things, particularly if you guys put in the time. Um, what I'll do, if you... If you spend the time and give me good comments on these and fill them out, then I'm going to look at them seriously and I'm going to make changes for next time so the people that go back through this will have a better experience. So it's all the way you frame it. Also, you know, making changes. If you make changes and show people that you're making changes or you tell about changes you've made in the past, then people will, you know, take you seriously on it. Great. Those are great ideas, and I know, especially around that first point about asking better questions, that's really what this performance-focused Smile Sheets is all about. Lots of great uh, ideas and tips there for how to do that better. Um, now, many of our listeners uh, are at organizations that hold an annual conference with educational sessions, uh, you know, so a multi-day event, multiple sessions. How would you recommend that those organizations handle measuring the learning at such an event? And I'm thinking of things like the balance between you know feedback on the overall event as well as individual sessions, and then what we were just talking about too around uh, you know immediate uh, feedback versus after a delay. Sure. So uh, you know the number one thing to think about when you're measuring is what do you want to measure and why. So there's many reasons to measure. One is you want to get a sense of the reputation of the program. You want to get a sense of whether they liked it. Okay, so those are important. Those things are probably, those kind of questions are probably valuable for uh, uh, an overall conference evaluation. But you also want to be able to get feedback on whether your sessions are effective, uh, whether they're providing the participants with uh, the information they need, whether they're well designed, etc., and those I think should be done at the session level. Um, it's you know if you if you give someone a overall conference evaluation and you give it to them a week later or whatever, 
they're not going to zero in to a particular session. So you're not getting feedback on that. You're not able to give feedback to your, uh, your speakers. You're not able to get a sense of you know, how the speakers are doing in general uh, and whether you know, there needs to be some kind of uh, intervention to encourage your speakers to do uh, a more effective job. Right, so that's good about looking at the purpose for the evaluations and using that to help you help guide when you ask, what you ask, and uh, yeah, how much you ask, I guess, about each of those. Um, and you know, at, at multiple points in your book, performance focus smile sheets, you know, you point out that what you're after is better measurement, not ideal measurement, and um, and I think that is, is evident a little bit in what you're talking about here, sort of the, the, these balancing of different demands. But could you talk a little bit more about that perspective, this kind of progress over perfection perspective and what that does for learning professionals? Sure. Um, it's one of the first things I mention in my measurement workshops, that there's no perfect measurement, there's no perfect smile sheet, there's no perfect smile sheet question. What we're trying to do is to figure out number one what we're trying, what we're aiming to measure, and do we have a reasonably good measure of that um, metric? The problem is a lot of the things we do now with traditional smile sheets, we know based on the research that they're not effective. So what I, you know, I, the whole reason I wrote this book is I asked myself, okay. I've seen these meta-analyses. I see that they're not correlated with learning results. So as a learning professional, should I just throw them out? And I said to myself, no, we're going to use them anyway, right? There's, there's a demand for that. Um, it's nice for the learners to feel they have an opportunity to give feedback. Um, so we're going to use them anyway. Can we make them better? And after thinking about it, um, I decided, yes, we can make them better. We're not going to we're not going to reach perfection. Um, and, you know, it's a funny thing. When I, <laughs> I've been working on my own smile sheets because I do workshops. I've been working on my own smile sheets for years. And so I create a new version. I go, oh, this is much better. This is perfect. <laughs> and, and then a year later, I look at it and I go, oh, what was I thinking? I can make it better. In fact, I just did a workshop a couple of weeks ago where I completely revamped my smile sheet again. And, uh, you know, even after, and I asked my participants the last question I asked them, "What would you do to make my smile sheet better?" And they ah. gave me feedback, and then, so now I I know I can make it better and better. So it's not about perfection; it's about um, having questions that give us good feedback that support the learners in making decisions. Because when they're answering our smile sheet questions, they're making decisions, and we need to support them by asking them the kind of questions that aren't biased, that are focused on things that are relevant, that are designed in such a way that um, they're able to give us pertinent information. I love that idea of adding, uh, you know, how can we make this uh, smile sheet better to the end? That's, that's brilliant. Crowdsourcing there. Right, right. Um, one of the things you talk about in, in the book and elsewhere are, are the four pillars of training effectiveness. So, uh, I would love to have you share those four pillars and then, and then talk about how they relate to learning measurement. Sure. So what I did in the book um, was I looked at these four pillars. And, you know, there's hundreds of variables that affect learning, uh, but some of them are really important. And you need to simplify. If you overcomplicate things, then um, 
people can't get their heads around it. Uh, we tend to then sort of fool ourselves that we're doing a lot of this stuff. So I said, okay, what are the four things that we have a lot of control over that we can do? So the first one is, uh, do the learners understand? Are they comprehending? Number two, uh, are the learners able to remember what they've learned? Because if they understand, if they comprehend, but they don't remember it, then we haven't done much. Uh, the number three, are they motivated to apply what they've learned? Or do they have self-efficacy about it? Do they believe they can accomplish something? Are they motivated to do that? And number four is, is there some after-learning follow-through? Because we know if you just put training in front of people, if you just put an educational session in front of people, that that may give them some awareness and it may even support them in some of these other things. But what's really needed is for them to be able to integrate this on the job. They might need reminders. They might need um, uh, refreshers. They might need some practice. They might need coaching. There's a lot of things after the training or after the learning that can benefit them in applying um, what they've learned to their jobs. Now, obviously, in an organizational training setting, we have more leverage on that. Um, if we're having people come to a conference, it's a little bit more challenging, but I have seen some things that work. For example, the notion of subscription learning, where someone comes to a session and then you get them to sign up for a month of follow-up reinforcers about it. Um, so, uh, again, that, that last principle, making sure that it's applied on the job, is, is, uh, is critical as well. Yeah, and I've seen at uh, conferences as well the idea of maybe partnering up and having sort of an accountability buddy that you've met in a, in a session and continuing conversations afterwards. And that seems to fit in that sort of fourth pillar as, as well as a way of helping to provide some of that ongoing support. That's a great idea. In fact, I, I think, you know, because this is a difficult one, that fourth pillar uh, for conferences, that, uh, you know, uh, some creativity around that um, would be great. In fact, maybe we should have a conference session on that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> yeah, so, so you have those four pillars, and then, so talk about how they relate to, to the measurement piece as well. So, okay, so there's... In the last 10, 15, 20 years, the science of learning has really blossomed. And these four pillars are sort of an embodiment of that. Um, and uh, so the notion is that we not only ought to design based on the science of learning notion, but we ought to think about um, when we're asking questions about effectiveness of our learning interventions, we ought to ask questions based on what we know about the science of learning. Right. Um, so, for example, uh, we know that uh, practice, having practice on real-world tasks, is a really great way to help people remember. So we can ask questions on our smile sheet to get a sense of whether they've done that. Um, we know that motivation to learn, motivation to apply what they've learned is critical. So we can ask questions about that. And I actually brought a... Um, conference evaluation form with me here and uh, let's see if I, I think I have one that has okay so this is one this is from the uh, International Society for Performance Improvement and um, they have a, a question uh, 
and it's labeled learner learning supported by practice. And they have three options. One option is the session was mostly lecture, but it was good. The next option is the session was mostly lecture and would have benefited from more practice. And the third option is more than one third of the session was devoted to practice using activities such as work-related decision-making and or realistic job-relevant exercises. So again, that differentiation can give you a sense of whether the speaker just went up there and uh, delivered content or whether they uh, mixed it up a little bit and made it more interactive, made it more engaging. Excellent. I love the example. That's good to have the, the real world application there. Um, so, you know, one of the points that I liked, and I think that question you just shared probably, um, probably hints at it as well, but I just love this idea that what we ask on the smile sheet can send stealth messages. So would you explain what stealth messages are and, and why they're an important part of the value that smile sheets can deliver? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we like to believe about human beings and human cognition is that we're very proactive. But the truth is we're very reactive. We react to cues in our environment. And one of the things that we react to is um, we react in a way that is sort of subconscious. So we get, uh, you know, we're, we're driving along the street and if the road is narrow, we'll slow down. We don't need a stop sign. We don't need to be consciously, oh, it's 25 miles per hour, I need to slow down. But if the street narrows, if you to take the yellow lines off it, if you put trees up beside the street, that sends subconscious signals about um, what you ought to be doing, that you ought to slow down. So it's the sort of same idea. Um, one of the things that we in organizations often need to do is to educate our stakeholders, and we try to do that with rational arguments. But there's things that we do on a, um, you know, a routine basis that we might send stealth messages. So I'll give you an example from my work. I used to run a leadership development product line, and we would have uh, we, we would try to recruit really good leadership trainers, and we would have them come in, and we asked them during this interview process to take 20 minutes and uh, present something to us, okay? And so the message we were sending there was that what's important is how you deliver learning. But if we had wanted them to also have good consulting skills, to be able to go out and work with people, to find out what the needs are, uh, the learning needs are, to coach people as well, we might have asked them to demonstrate their consulting skills. If we would have done that, and we didn't, I'm embarrassed to say now, but if we would have done that, we would have had a stealth message that what's important is not just what happens in front of a classroom, but what happens uh, in the consulting uh, engagement as well. So there's lots of things we can do to send um, uh, stealth messages in our work. And smile sheets are a really good opportunity to do that. So when we ask questions about uh, the question I just read about practice, we're sending a stealth message that practice is really important. So right. that, me that message goes to the speakers, but it also goes to every person who answers this. All our members read that. Um, I'll give you another example from ISPI. One of the things about smile sheets is you can also, uh, in a conference setting, you can think about what your brand is and how you want to emphasize that, send stealth messages about your brand. So uh, in ISPI, one of their 
key um, goals is to have provide research based practice, evidence based practice. So they, we, we, and I helped them with this. We um, decided to ask two questions about research. One was, how much research slash evidence was shared, and the answer choices were zero or very little research evidence was shared. Uh, a small amount of research evidence was shared or a substantial amount of research evidence was shared. Uh, they also asked a question, what was the quality of the research evidence shared? And people would say, I don't know the research well enough to answer the question. Um, they could say, too often the concepts presented seem to conflict with the most trusted research. And the third choice was the concepts presented were generally supported by solid research. So you can see by asking two questions out of about eight uh, that you're sending a message about what's important to the organization. Um, and again, that has an incredible ripple effect. So speakers can get this form in advance and they can design their presentations based on uh, what you uh, emphasize. Uh, every member of the organization who fills out a smile sheet for a session gets to see, oh, research is really important for this organization. And then when you look at the results, you can see which speakers are uh, pushing using research, which is which are not, uh, etc. So there's a lot of advantages. Yeah, I loved it. It was one of the big takeaways for me was this idea of stealth messages, and and another point that was a big takeaway for me um, was just this idea of having pre-established uh, levels of, accept of acceptability of responses. So you know we're not just looking at results and then sort of determining okay. Yeah, that seems like we did pretty well on, on that question, but we're actually setting up in advance that, um, and I guess using like the example that you've just just given, you know, this idea, okay, well, maybe the acceptable response is, you know, uh, at least a third of uh, the session was devoted to, to, to practice. Um, but w will you give maybe another example or talk a little bit more about just this idea of setting standards for the question responses? Sure. So let's... let's um let me sort of level set this. So normally what we do with our smile sheets is that we use a Likert-like scale or we use a numeric scale. So with a Likert-like scale, you give a statement and then you have people answer, um, you know, strongly agree, agree, uh, neither agree nor disagree, disagree, strongly disagree. And then you might transform that into a number. Or you might just have a number scale, one to five, and put strongly agree on one side, strongly disagree on the other side. So what happens there is you're going to average those results and you're going to come up with a number, like 4.1. And then at the end, after you've gathered all the data, you're going to look at the numbers and you're going to go, oh, well, what does it mean? Well, that leads to two things. Number one, bias, because we're going to you know, we don't, it doesn't really tell us much, right? So we're going to input our own bias into it. And number two, it leads to paralysis, that it doesn't really create any urgency for what to do. So my suggestion is, um, number one, don't use like or like scales, don't use numeric scales. As you heard from my examples, I suggest very concrete answer choices. Um, and then, since you have these concrete answer choices, you can decide in advance, and usually you want to do this with your stakeholders, um, to get their input, and it's actually a great opportunity to have a conversation that you might not normally have. But decide with your stakeholders what are the choices and what would be acceptable, what would be you know superior, what would be not acceptable. And you can use your own term terminology in the book. I have some. I have twenty six candidate questions, and for each of them, I 
you know, suggest some standards, but I also say don't use my standards. Think about what you really want in your organization and work with your stakeholders to get that. Um, what happens then is you get your results and you go, oh my gosh, look at that. Um, we see that uh, most people said they got awareness out of this training program. But we really wanted them to go above awareness. We wanted them to be able to actually do something on the job, and only 20% said they could do something on the job. And then you, you've decided in advance what the good results would be. Then you look at your results and say, oh my gosh, 20, only 20% are able to actually do something. Maybe we need to go back and look at this course and design uh, more work into it to enable people to practice uh, to think about what decisions they would make, uh, give good examples, bad examples, etc. That's great. Again, I found, I found that very helpful, that idea of yeah, knowing in advance what is acceptable or, or beyond acceptable. So uh, as we begin to start to wrap up, what, one question is just to pick up a little bit, and when you think about the future of learning measurement, you know, what do you hope or, or think might change in the next five years or so? Well, I hope we throw out our old way of doing smile sheets. Um, but I also think, uh, and I emphasize in the book, that smile sheets are, even though they're the most popular thing we, we do, and even though they're the, probably the easiest thing we do, we do, we probably shouldn't stop with them. So we really ought to be thinking more holistically about the whole measurement. Uh, you know, we want people to understand things so perhaps we ought to measure that we want people to be able to remember things so perhaps we ought to measure that we want people to be able to apply things we want to know what supports they had what was helpful what was not helpful what obstacles so maybe we ought to measure that um uh so better smile sheets because that's the most popular thing we do and is most easy to change um better mechanisms for gathering um additional information one of the things one of the uh, metrics that I think is really helpful um, ways to assess is to use scenario-based questions. Mm. So instead of asking people if they remember a certain terminology or definition or whatever, which is practically meaningless, you get, put them in a situation or you say, you know, Sam is in this situation. I was writing one this morning about Sam, a chief learning officer, and you've got to answer a series of questions. Um, and you, you know, put people in that situation. You ask them, what, what should Sam do? Or what would you do in that situation? And you give them some good answer choices that are all plausible. Um, and uh, there's, it's a little bit tricky because multiple choice questions can hint at answers. But if you design them uh, well... They're really powerful. Yeah, certainly, a uh, high bang for the buck because you're you're doing a lot of things that we know are aligned with learning science, but you're not spending as much money as you would on a simulation or on a full apprenticeship program as well. Right. Good. So yeah, sort of the a good kind of proxy for the actual performance in in the workplace or out there. Exactly. So next to last question, um, this is one we like to ask everybody on the Leading Learning Podcast. So just would love to hear about your approach to your own um, lifelong learning. How do you go about making sure that you stay up? I know you mentioned uh, that you read at least 200 um, uh, articles a year. Um, so I know that's got to be part of it. But any other aspects of how you sort of stay up? Well, the first thing is have a, an attitude of openness. 
and be open to, uh, you know, getting experiences, um, seeking things out that you might not normally um, go after. Uh, you know, one of the things we know about, for example, creativity is that the most creative people are those that are not only really well versed in their fields, but also have a tangential knowledge of other fields as well. So uh, I, I recently did a book review um, uh, of Connie Malamed's book on visual design for learning professionals. So, you know, visual design might not be something I, I would think to, that I needed to know specifically or in depth about as a learning professional, but it is. It's something that's very uh, important. So by reading her book, um, by being open to that um, and, and that kind of thing, I think that's really viable. So I try to do that. Um, yeah, there's just just uh, lots of information sources. Now it can be it can be daunting sometimes <laughs> because you know if you just you know spend all your day on Twitter or online, you know you can be overwhelmed with this stuff. So it's a little bit of balance, um, but just you know being open, multiple information sources, going places where you might think uh, it's not directly related, but hey, maybe there's something interesting in there. Right, I think that's helpful for me. Absolutely, me too. And so final question is, um, if listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where should they look? Well, unfortunately, I have uh, like seven different <laughs> <laughs> websites, but I'll, I'll just tell you two of them. Um, so smilesheets.com is the book's website. So if you're interested in that, you can get it there. Uh, I offer a, the, uh, my auth- I offer an author discount there. It's the most inexpensive place to get the book. Um, and uh, my, my consulting practice is work learning research. So it's work-learning.com, work-learning.com. And I'll tell you one more, my blog. <laughs> it's will at worklearning.com, will at worklearning.com. We'll make sure to get all of those in the show notes. And I highly recommend all of those uh, sites because... Will, you do a great job of, of putting out um, resources and information that's very practical and actionable. So thank you for that, and thank you for uh, taking time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Salisa. This has been great. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Will Tallheimer. As we're exiting, we want to be sure to mention our upcoming fall event, the Leading Learning Symposium. And that's an event designed specifically for leaders in the business of continuing education, professional development, and lifelong learning. And our aim there is to help you maximize the reach, revenue, and impact of your education business. To get all the details, just go to symposium.leadinglearning.com. We'd also like to once again thank Web Courseworks for being the sponsor of this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can get show notes for this episode by going to leadinglearning.com slash episode 41. And while you're there, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And we really do hope that you will subscribe if you're getting value out of the podcast. 
And we'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Again, just go to leadinglearning.com forward slash iTunes. It just takes a second to do, and it makes it much easier for folks to find us when they're out there looking for where to get the good word about the business of lifelong learning. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can pick another social network of your preference and share that way. So thanks again, and we will see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.